everyone, and welcome to Bible Quest. This is the Tuesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us. You can go to BibleQuest.org at any time and enter in your questions or comments while we're going through the show or, or, or any time. But right now, we're streaming live on YouTube, and so I'm going to turn it right over to Jeff. Am I turning it over to you, Jeff? You can turn it over to me, Drew. Thank you very much. But I have to say for our viewers who are taking you seriously that they're listening to this live and hearing you say this is the Tuesday edition. This is the Wednesday edition. It actually yeah. is oh. Wednesday today. <laughs> I, I was sorry. I, yeah, I was working on the Tuesday video recording and responding. Oh, sorry about that. Today it's the Wednesday edition. Thank yeah. You. We don't, we don't. Yeah. But don't you know, want anybody confused. If you're all right, so obviously, if it's the Tuesday show, Jeff, you're Scott. Joe, would you rather be Justin or Dan? Which one would you rather be? <laughs> Either one of them is an upgrade. So <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be talking about some messianic prophecies. That is things in the Old Testament that uh, look forward to the coming Christ. And uh, so, welcome to Bible Quest today. And of course. Here, I'm Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. Chase Byers in Fishers, Indiana. Chase, hello. Hey, how's it going? And Joe works in Elmira, New York. Um, and so uh, let's talk a little bit about this. And, and when we talk about Old Testament prophecies of the Christ, guys, uh, there's a, a kind of a wide range of, of things that fall into this category. There are things that are very clearly looking forward to the future Christ, uh, even people who heard the, the things uttered in Old Testament times would have recognized it as such. And there are other things in the Old Testament that you would never guess were about the Christ until you uh, come to the New Testament and see it kind of realized. Um, there are things that are explicit predictions. There are things that are foreshadowings. Um, but just by way of jumping into this, what would you say you think is one of the most obvious um prophecies of the coming christ in the old testament something that would that it i mean anybody can turn to the old testament read it recognize that's what it is it's talking about the coming christ and that even people in old testament times would have recognized it wow even people in the old testament times would have recognized it um well all right would deuteronomy uh 18 15 or i was going backwards 15 yeah. 18 or 18 15 um, 15 through 18 uh yeah would, would that be one prophet like unto me yeah yeah maybe but you know i always i'm a little puzzled by that one because um you know you get you you look at what we read in numbers and and there was a prophet like unto moses who was chosen uh, Joshua to lead the people into the land of Canaan. And I wonder, would people have thought that that was what was in view there? So I, I, I that was the one that the way you asked the question, that was, uh, I think probably the, the, the first thing that came to my mind was Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18. Uh, because when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? One of the answers was the prophet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they were looking for this prophet to come. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, are you the prophet to, to John the Baptist even? So I think they did see that as a uh, as a description of someone coming. Now, you added a wrinkle in your question because you said uh, uh, prophecies of the Christ. Right. So I don't know that they would have thought of that as the Christ. They sort of had like there was these various people that 
that the Old Testament was talking about coming, the prophet that was to come, the Christ that was to come. Um, uh, Even Elijah got separated out as being a separate category. In John 1, are you Elijah? Are, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Right, exactly. Yeah. So we see several of those being fulfilled in Christ. I don't know that they would have seen those as being a composite of the one to come. Um, but maybe there's different answers for different people at that time. Yeah. Can, can I throw another one out there? Yeah, throw. So Second Samuel 7, David wants to build God a house. Um, God says, this is not a house for you to build, but I'm going to build you a house. And he will say in Second Samuel 7, 12, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you, your descendant, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a, his father and he will be my son, so forth and so on. In the short term, Solomon is the obvious candidate for this. Right, right. He is going to be the one that's going to go on to build the house. But later in the New Testament, similarly to what, the way Joe was phrasing um, what he was talking about earlier, you see people recognizing that the Christ would have to come from David. And they were saying, you know, Jesus, the son of David, son of David, Bartimaeus, have mercy on me. You know, so uh, I think Second Samuel 7 would be another one. So and that that illustrates a certain type of prophecy. Those things in the Old Testament where they're it's first looking ahead to some near term realization. Uh, and yet that real term realization, near term realization foreshadows the ultimate realization in Christ. So in, in 2 Samuel 7, Nathan the prophet says that your son is going to build a house for my name. And then as you mentioned, we get to 1 Chronicles 22. And when David is instructing Solomon, his near-term son, about the building of the temple, he mentions that. He mentions that God told him. Verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 22, he says, you know, he was told, my son, he shall build a house for my name and he shall be my son and I'll be his father and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. But we get to Hebrews chapter one and this is quoted with respect to the Christ. And, and so clearly you have a situation where when Nathan said that to David, he was talking both about Solomon and ultimately about the Christ and Solomon foreshadowed the Christ. That happens a number of times in the Old Testament. Maybe uh, throw another verse in with that. First Kings 8. 20, Solomon thought that he was the fulfillment of that. Um, uh, so at, when the uh, temple is being uh, built and dedicated, uh, Solomon says in 1 Kings 8, 20, so the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father, David, sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. Yep. And I have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. Right. So it's like Solomon thought, okay, this is this one is checked off, if you will. You know, I've I have fulfilled that, and with great honor, he's saying this. But um, uh, you're you're absolutely right; it was fulfilled, and yet, um, uh, and and maybe even could we would it be helpful to step back and say that some of it was fulfilled in Solomon, and while it was ultimately fulfilled in Christ, it wasn't exactly fulfilled in Christ. Second Samuel seven because it talks about him committing sins and being uh, chastised. You know there are a lot of passages in the Old Testament that are about the Christ that also have application in history in Old Testament times, and the application to the Christ 
and the application to the Old Testament event or person are different. Same words, uh, but with different meanings, depending on who, who it's referring to. So I look at that passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, and, and even the part about committing sin. So let, let's, let, let's look at that. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, verse 14. I'll be a father to him. He'll be a son to me. Well, well, that's true of both Solomon and Christ. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. In the case of Solomon, he was um, he committed iniquity. He married a bunch of women he wasn't supposed to marry. He accommodated their idolatry. Um, and in the passage in 1 Kings 11, where it details that, it then goes through and it says God raised up an adversary and God raised up another adversary and, and then Jeroboam. And so there were these adversaries that come along right on the heels of, of God saying, uh, of God rebuking Solomon for his sin. Um, and so it's easy to see that this statement, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, applies to Solomon and what happened to him. However, literally, it wasn't men applying strokes to Solomon. But then when we come to Jesus, who did not literally commit sin, but did become sin, our, our sin in his body on the tree, on the cross, he's literally struck with the strokes of men. And so I can see this language applying both to Solomon and to Jesus, but each part of the language means something different with regard to Solomon and, and Jesus. The, the strokes means one thing with regard to Solomon. It's figurative, literal with regard to Jesus. The committing sin is literal with regard to Solomon, but it's kind of figurative with respect to Jesus because Jesus didn't actually commit the sin, though he took our sin in his body. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Great, great way of, of stating all that. That's really helpful to see. And as you said, Hebrews 1.5 certainly tells us that this was fulfilled in Christ. That very that very verse, 2 Samuel 7, 14. Yeah. So what's a passage, though? And and you know what? I, I, I think you guys probably both know that my personal faith is just tremendously rooted in the vast, uh, the pervasive, the pervasive nature of prophecy in the Old Testament, where it's not an explicit prediction. It's not a case where somebody's saying in the future the Christ is going to come and he's going to do this or that, but rather it's just in the in the foreshadowing of the scheme of redemption and of the Christ that pervades the Old Testament. That is that that to me is where where my faith really is rooted. That that I can be confident the Bible is the Word of God, but there are some instances where you have something in the Old Testament that is such a clear prediction of what the Christ would do or would be, it would have been recognizable and was recognizable as such, even before the Christ came. And it didn't have some application to an Old Testament character first. It's just an outright prediction. Um, anything come to mind? No. So I wonder, what about Psalm 22? I look at Psalm 22 as a passage like Psalm 41, where David is describing his own circumstance, and yet it also is realized in the Christ. Okay, so you're saying something that, that doesn't have fulfillment immediate at all. Something that somebody so, in the Old Testament would have seen as being about the Christ and only about the Christ. Micah 5. I think Micah 5 is very clear in that regard. 
it, it it's a so let's turn over there. Let's turn over to Micah chapter four and five. And and the evidence that they did understand it that way, of course, is in Matthew, and we'll get to that in a moment. But um Micah chapter four and five. So Micah's written uh roughly seven hundred years before Jesus at a time when the Judah is not in captivity in Babylon, is they're not going to go into captivity in Babylon for another hundred years. But Micah's already looking forward to that period of time and describing it in these words in verse nine of, of Micah four. Why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Well, the, the fact is at the time Micah writes, there was a king. In fact, Micah, the first chapter, verse one, tells us that Micah is prophesying during the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. But he's anticipating a time when there won't be a king. And he says in verse nine, or has your counselor perished that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? And then he says, verse 10, writhe and labor to give birth daughter of Zion like a woman in childbirth. For now you'll go out of the city, dwell in the field and go to Babylon. So he's foreseeing the Babylonian captivity. And he describes it as a period of time corresponding to a woman in labor. A woman in labor goes through pain, but what's the outcome of her labor? A birth. A, a, a birth. A life, so a he's life. talked about you're going to be without a king, but you're going to go through the labor pains to give birth to, to a coming king. And so he's he's looking forward to the king that they're going to have after they come out of captivity. And he says, coming down to verse 2 of chapter 5, um, as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Let's just pause there. You cannot, you cannot read that any way other than to say it's talking about a future ruler who's going to come. And when you follow the context, you can't read it any way other than to say it's a ruler who's going to come after they go into Babylonian captivity. Mm -hmm. And he says this ruler is going to come from Bethlehem. Now, he says more. He says this ruler is one whose goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Wow, that's impressive. Uh, he says he's going to be our peace in verse 5. So he says a lot about this one. But anybody reading that in the Old Testament um, in the days of Micah would have acknowledged this is talking about a future ruler who's going to come after we go into captivity in Babylon. So maybe I don't know that we talked about this, but there may be somebody that isn't familiar with this idea. When we're talking about the Christ or Messiah from the Old Testament word, Hebrew word, we're talking about the anointed one. I at least I take the position that we're talking primarily about kingship there, yeah, I do just, as, just as Micah is, is discussing and so as we're looking at these passages that would point to the Christ, we're, we're wanting to emphasize this idea of him being the coming king, right? Right, right. right. In fact, Christ is, is Greek for the Old Testament, as we pronounce it, Messiah, which meant anointed one. Right. And we can go back to the story of, of Saul and David and see the concept of the king being anointed, literally olive oil, anointing his head. Uh, designating him to be God's chosen one, to be king. And so they were looking for a new anointed one after they came out of captivity from Babylon. And Micah just said he's going to come from Bethlehem. So it, it's talking about 
where this king is going to come from. Of course, Jesus ends up being born in Bethlehem. But, but what's the evidence that in, so I'm saying Jews would have understood this. Uh, what's the evidence that in fact, Jews did understand this to be a prophecy about the coming king, the, the Christ, in fact. Yeah, so Matthew 2, and that's why I wanted to make sure that we were saying, when we're talking about Christ, we're saying king, we're, we're, we're connecting that with the word king, the anointed to be king, because when the wise men came to Herod, and Herod then inquired of the religious leaders uh, of, uh, of the king, you know, they were saying in Matthew 2, 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then Herod hears about it. He goes to the chief priest. They then quote Micah 5, 2 in uh, verse 6. And uh, that in Bethlehem of Judah, verse 5, for thus it is written by the prophet. And then that very verse that we're talking about in Micah 5 and in verse 2. So the question of the king. And then as you mentioned here, then this idea of the one who is going to be the, the ruler so what you have here then is 700 years before Jesus is born, you have a prophet of God saying the one who would be king after they come out of Babylon in captivity would come from Bethlehem. And then we have evidence the Jews understood that's what it was saying. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for the Messiah, the one to be king, the Christ, to, to come out of Bethlehem. Uh, it, there's an interesting passage over in John 7 where there's some people who are doubting that Jesus could possibly be the Christ uh, because, and I'll just read it. This is John 7 and verse uh, 40 is where I'll start. Some of the multitude, when they heard these words, said, this is a, of a truth, the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, what? Does the Christ come out of Galilee? Hasn't the scripture said that the Christ comes out of the seed of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So they knew that the, the prophecy was he would come from Bethlehem. They just didn't know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They, they, they assumed Jesus was born in Galilee because Jesus grew up in Galilee. Very good. So, so that, that to me, and we use the word astonishing, I think, in the description of today's uh, program. The, the idea that 700 years before Jesus was born, it, it was said he's going to come from Bethlehem. That, that I think, is impressive to a lot of people. Uh, to me, it's even more impressive to see just how everything in the Old Testament, in subtle ways and, and not so subtle ways, is about the coming Christ. And could, could we at least make the connection with Second Samuel 7 as well here? Maybe just to kind of put a couple of thoughts together. The reason he came from Bethlehem is because they went back for the census because Joseph and Mary's lineage traces back to David, who was from Bethlehem, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. And so even, even that very prophecy that we mentioned a moment ago about Second Samuel 7, that event, that the, what what you talked about as far as how the passages all connect together, right. uh, that thread that runs through the Old Testament of this king. All right, well, let me ask a, another question of you guys. What, you personally, what is your favorite messianic prophecy? Now, maybe you don't have one, but but what is one you find yourself constantly referring to? You like talking about it, especially 
in some way it's your favorite messianic prophecy if, if there is such prob uh can i give three <laughs> okay three is a three is a biblical number <laughs> all right i'll give three and then i'll we'll hear joe's and we can figure pick where we want to go oh, we got I, would say, I would say genesis three fifteen um okay. is definitely one for me all right uh i would say isaiah 53 and then genesis 22. All right. Yeah, and I, the part of your question specifically, which of those you get excited to talk about? Yeah. The, the, that part of the question definitely is true for those three. All right. So talk to us about one of those, Chase. All right. Uh, uh, we'll talk about, <laughs> Gen we'll, we'll talk about, we'll talk about Genesis three. How's that? Cause okay. I, I think it's, I think it's the earliest foreshadowing of what the Christ is going to do. Um, and so, Obviously, sin is entered the world. Um, there's this really broken picture with Adam and Eve hiding themselves from God. It's just a really messed up picture. And God comes in with consequences. As he said, they will surely die. And as you're reading the text, you're, you're kind of sad because, wow, they've already messed up. And you're thinking about sin that's come into the world. But in Genesis chapter 3, uh, this is God cursing the serpent. In verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So in verse 15, God is part of the consequences to the serpent. He introduces this idea of hostility, enmity, a lot of translations say, some kind of turmoil between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. And you fast forward to the New Testament. I'm trying to condense this because I know we yeah. have a lot of different places yeah. we can go. You're good. But in, in, Gen in Galatians 4, in verse 4, it talks about Jesus being born of a woman. He's the offspring of her. Uh, and then you think about John chapter 12, the offspring of the devil, the Pharisees. Um, they, they have this great collision. They have this, this war that we're talking about. And there they are killing Jesus. They're, they have him on the cross. And so you almost you have this picture of the serpent biting the heel of Jesus, of the offspring of the woman. But then, of course what the serpent doesn't see is the, the blow that's coming to his head and that the cross, although to Satan, it looks like Jesus has done. It's really the final blow to his head. Yeah. Um, and so I realized I fast forwarded through that, but that that's such an early prophecy of Jesus. And it always impresses me. So, so there's a passage in Romans 16. Uh, yes. You, you see that as an allusion to yeah, this? I do. I do, because I think there's a continuation. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. So let's read that one. Because there, there's a sense in which, yes, Jesus, as as Revelation pictures Jesus too, putting an end to Satan, wrapping him up, throwing him into the, the lake of fire. But in Romans chapter 16, uh, Paul will say about the church there in verse 19, the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you but I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet and the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So this is also a sense in which when we choose to do what's right, we obey the Father. There's a sense in which we're we're putting a, a final blow. We're crushing the serpent underneath our feet as well. Um, so I think that's kind of cool. Good, yeah. Could, could I just sidebar for just a quick second? Yeah. yeah. Do you find it incredible that in the passage that describes that fulfillment in Genesis 3, here in Romans 16, that God is called the God of peace? The God of peace will crush. That just doesn't quite, like, I have to stop and think that one through. Um, you know, because you don't normally equate somebody being peaceable with crushing but but it's but he is the god of peace because he has destroyed this thing that has created enmity between man and god and so it is the perfect word obviously it's inspired but it takes me a minute when i read through that to think wow the god of peace crushes yeah so the, the, yep. the peace is the counterpoint to the hostility or enmity that was alluded to in Genesis 3. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Excellent observations. Anybody want to say just a word uh, in verse 20 of Romans 16 about the, the word shortly, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly or, or soon. <clears throat> I agree with it. <laughs> okay. was, that, was that short enough for me to, to quick comment was yeah i'll take that okay uh, all right so joe chase gave us his three favorites uh what, what would you say your favorite would so be? the other two that you gave was isaiah 53 and psalm 22 is that right genesis 22 genesis 22 so uh i had isaiah 53 as well just because it's so overwhelming encompasses so many different individuals both Christ as well as his enemies. So for that to be fulfilled, that would certainly be one. Psalm 22 in similar fashions. Um, but I think the one that I would have to say that I'm most excited about, I would just answer that because, if I'm not mistaken, it's the most quoted passage of the New Testament. Uh, most, most old, It's the Old Testament passage that is quoted most often in the New Testament. Psalm 110. And so I think just because it seems as if both Jesus and the writers of the New Testament relied on that so much, you know, used that in so many different ways, that's that's just just makes it incredible to me. Um, yeah, and and Psalm one ten is one of those passages um, that has a has a forward-looking thing to it there are a lot of messianic prophecies in the old testament that don't on on their face don't necessarily look forward-looking you have to connect them to the christ to realize they are forward-looking but this one uh the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet the lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from zion saying rule in the midst of thine enemies Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. And, and so to connect that with this question about the Christ and the uh, prophecies and so forth, uh, Matthew 22, when Jesus silences the religious leaders on that day of, of debates um, uh, in verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? 
whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, uh, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. It might be easier if we quoted verses 43 and 44 and uh, used the word Yahweh there where it's appropriate. Uh, He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies. It's two different words there. Um, uh, And so uh, Yahweh, God, is saying to my Lord, David's Lord, sit at my right hand. Um, And that was one that puzzled, you know, uh, Mark's account especially says that the religious leaders didn't know how to answer him in that regard. Which to my mind says they understood that passage was messianic. They understood that it was talking about the Christ because if they didn't understand that, when Jesus says, well, 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 if the Christ is the son of David, how does David call the Christ Lord? They could have simply responded when he quoted Psalm 110. They said, oh, that's not talking about the Christ. Yeah. But they didn't say that because apparently they knew it was talking about the Christ, which says this is another passage that the Jews got it. They recognized this is messianic. This is about the coming Christ. uh, But it's such a paradox that they could not figure out how could the Christ be someone that David called Lord. If he's David's uh, descendant, how can David be calling him Lord? That was the, the, the conundrum. Yes. So, yes. yeah. And of course the answer is what, what we saw in, in Micah five, he, his days are from long ago, even though yeah. he's coming in the future, he's already existed in the past. And, and, and the Hebrew writer quotes this passage from Psalm 110 so often. And uh, I love how the Hebrew writer makes that point about past and uh, you know that he was before David and uh, uh, but as David's son thinking about the statement that he makes in uh, Hebrews 7 and um, I'll get it here uh, verse 3 so we're talking about Melchizedek here in uh, Hebrews 7 and in describing Melchizedek in verse 3 without father without mother without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like the son of God. Yeah. And so they might have looked at Psalm 110 and said, well, the Christ is going to be like Melchizedek. Right. The Hebrew writer flips that and says, no, Melchizedek was made like the son of God. That's made right. Like the Christ, uh, because we understand Jesus was before Melchizedek. Um, yeah. And, and so, and- Go, go up. Sorry. Well, so Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of uh, of Jesus, um, uh, but also is made was was lived his life in imitation of Jesus. Yeah, Melchizedek wasn't just some person that happened by chance to exist, and then they said, "Oh, we see some parallels here." God saw to it that Melchizedek was of such a nature and and described in such a way that he was made like unto the son of god exactly and and but that but that's interesting so we've got this psalm 110 that, that talks about uh yahweh saying to david's lord and well if david's king who's his lord other than yahweh well the christ is is what's in between there 
And uh, this, this passage in Psalm 110 talks about him going to be the ruler, having the scepter, but also that he's going to be a priest like Melchizedek. And so we've got this very clear prophecy in Psalm 110 that apparently the Jews understood to be about the Christ, but it's rooted in the story in Genesis 14 from much earlier about Melchizedek. And, and that's one of those messianic prophecies where you read Genesis 14 and you don't see something explicit there that that on the face of it is saying, I'm talking about the future here. You're just reading a story about a war between four kings and five kings. And in the aftermath of that war, this character Melchizedek shows up. And yet, as you read the story, you see all these parallels between Melchizedek and the Christ who eventually comes. And, and the Hebrew writer lays out those parallels. And so that's a different kind of prophecy. It's a prophecy where there's nothing in the text itself that says, I'm talking about the future here, guys. This is going to happen in the future. It's just a story of a man and what happens. And, and it all parallels what happens with Christ later on. And, and so when we, you know, maybe just a, a recognition... When we're reading the Bible and we come across a story like Genesis 14, and then later on we read Psalm 110, and that's pretty much it for Melchizedek in the Old Testament yep. until we get to the book of Hebrews, and then everything's put together for us, thankfully. Um, but when we read Genesis 14, and it seems like, why is this here? What's, yes. the, what's the point of it? A um, uh, uh, beloved brother, saint who has gone on, Doug Folk, would uh, would really emphasize when it seems like a passage doesn't have any purpose, it has great purpose. And, right. and that's not an exact quote. He said it much more eloquently than that. Um, uh, but really, like when you come across the passage, you're like, why is this added here? Why is why 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 place this person? And then he just kind of disappears. And so it's even more of a surprise. So it, it is pretty much screaming, pay attention to this because it's going to come back. That's right. That's right. And so it's uh, 800 years later then that in the Psalm that David writes, Psalm 110, that you, you have Melchizedek showing up again in, in that prophecy of the coming Christ. So, Jeff, what, what's on your list? Yeah. Oh, I was afraid you guys would say that. <laughs> I have a hard time. Uh, let, let's talk about Isaiah 53 for a moment since you brought that one up. Um because Isaiah 53 is one that, again, if you didn't have the New Testament and you just open up your Bible to Isaiah 53, you even there would not necessarily get the impression. We might not get the impression it's talking about anything in the future. Yeah. So I, I think the Ethiopian eunuch, right, in Acts 8, he, he's the one that asked that question. Is this talking about himself or is he talking about someone to come? I think that that was a tremendously insightful question, that he had the insight to wonder, is he talking about himself or somebody else? Because I think I would have been puzzled. <laughs> but but it wasn't that he, he understood it was about the coming Christ. Philip had to preach that to him, had to explain that to him. But what you do see in Isaiah 53 is this picture of one who is suffering tremendously and yet it's not for anything he's done wrong. It's for what we have done wrong. And that's a picture of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And you see various phrases in Isaiah 53. And we ought to highlight a few of these. Um, that once you know the story of Jesus on the cross, then you can't help but see it here in Isaiah 53. Um, so let's pick out a few of the phrases in Isaiah 53. 
that just jump out at you like that once you know the story of the cross. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yeah. So he had worth. He was everything. He was all we needed, but we rejected him. The New American Standard in verse 5 translates rather than saying wounded it says he was pierced through for our transgressions and if you read it pierced then of course you see a reference to the nails in uh in jesus hands and his feet uh verse five also says by his scourging we are healed which if you just pause and think about it how do you get healed by somebody being scourged uh the scourging when jesus when they took the whip and lashed jesus back before they crucified him um that's part of his suffering. And the point is by his suffering, we are healed because he is taking the punishment for our sins. Our sins are our sickness. They, they are death, but we can be saved from death because he took the punishment for it. What else do you see here in, in Isaiah 53? Well, if I, if I might just, maybe I'm forcing this, but we're talking about the Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And so is this a passage that we would see as, the Christ Messiah anointed one, my answer to that would be yes, because the introduction to this is really in the last three verses of 52, right? Right. And so in, you know, we have this servant that's going to be exalted in verse 13. Right. Um, uh, and then in verse 15, kings are going to shut their mouths. The end of verse 15 is quoted for us over in Romans, the 15th chapter and Paul there talks about in Romans 15, 20 and 21, he connects it with the Christ. Um, uh, and so I think that's helpful to see. This one really does fit quite perfectly with the the theme of prophecies of the Christ um, uh, because this is the end result, verses 13 through 15. He passes through verses, chapter 53, all of these things for us but he is going to be exalted as 52.13 says. You know, and I'm glad you mentioned that. So I'm, I'm going to make a suggestion. Some of you listening to this uh, program may be, may have opportunity sometimes to introduce the Lord's Supper, to make comments before a congregation participates in the Lord's Supper. And, and one thing that is often done is brethren will read Isaiah 53. And I would suggest, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not trying to make a law here or anything, but I would suggest it'd be very appropriate when you're going to do that, start at Isaiah 52, 13 and, and read straight, straight through from there. Um, I think you're right, Joe. I think that is kind of the introduction here. Um, okay. Uh, there are other phrases in Isaiah 53. There's the reference to Jesus being silent before his shearers. And we see Jesus silent before his accusers. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, the night before he's crucified in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, it talks about him being with a rich man in his death. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah. it was a rich man, Joseph Arimathea, who took his body and put Jesus' body in his own new tomb. Um, so various things there. And, and so then you get to that story in Acts the 8th chapter, and you have this eunuch from Ethiopia, and he's reading Isaiah 53, apparently knows very little or nothing about Jesus. And uh, he's just puzzled by this passage. Who is this talking about? Philip opens his mouth and preaches to him Jesus, beginning with this passage. And 
so maybe seeing that he begins in this passage, I know that you guys have seen this before, but the implication is that he doesn't stop with this passage, right? And so he keeps on reading. Yeah, we get over, yes, yes. We I get over to chapter fifty-six. Yeah, and this hope of eunuchs is mentioned specifically in chapter fifty-six and verse four. Yeah, uh, I just think that's that's got to be like, like so exciting, you know, that he he sees himself right here as the beneficiary of uh, this suffering servant. That these blessings uh, that are, are being showered upon the the barren and uh, the outcast and the foreigner and uh, the eunuch, um, uh, you know, everyone who thirsts come. You know, I just I can just imagine as he begins there in fifty three or fifty two thirteen, whatever, wherever, um, beginning of that passage. I guess he was in verse uh, seven and eight uh, where he was reading. Um, but you know, you you could just see where. Not only is he connecting it for the Christ, but he's making the application for him as to, well. To the man, yeah. I always, when I tell this story, I go through Isaiah 53 and talk about the things that Philip could have expounded upon uh, in Isaiah 53 to unfold the story of Jesus' crucifixion and the significance of Jesus' crucifixion to this eunuch. And and then uh, and then I, I just imagine Philip saying to him, unroll that scroll just a little further. Yeah. Yeah. Get over to Isaiah 56 and where it says, thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant to them. I will give in my house. This eunuch has just come back from Jerusalem, having traveled hundreds of miles, maybe 800 miles to go to Jerusalem to worship. And he gets there at the side of the temple and he cannot go in and fully right. participate because he's a eunuch. And, and so now he's, he's, done the best he could, not been able to really go in and participate, turned around on his way home, and he hears about this sacrifice made for him. And then this statement in verse 5 of Isaiah 56, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. And then verse 8, the Lord will gather his outcast of Israel. Yeah. says, yes, I will gather the, to him. It just is so powerful. So he goes um, from standing on the outskirts of the house to being in the house. And according to Paul's language in Ephesians 2, actually being part of the house, the yeah. house of God, a holy temple for the Lord. I I wanted to ask a question here while we're in Isaiah. I, it's removed from Isaiah 53. So if you all had anything else on that. No, well, go ahead. I, I started to mention a moment ago that could we just say Isaiah? <laughs> yes, um, you could. Yes, we're you talking could. about messianic. But so, yes, so to that point, Chase, go ahead. Well, chapter seven with the virgin birth, I was just going to ask, I mean, Jeff, I know you've actually done a lot of work on this passage in particular, um, but what what was the Jewish understanding with Isaiah seven, verse 12 or 13? I mean, yeah, that that's actually a good question. And uh, let me see here if I can grab this. I'm going to plug a little book here. So this is a little book. Lo, your salvation comes. And um, we've just got a minute here. So I'm going to take that minute and plug this book. Because I wrote a chapter in here on Isaiah chapter 7, which is the, we talk about the virgin birth prophecy. And we sometimes, excuse me, we sometimes look at the, the sign as the fact that a virgin was to give birth to a child. And actually in Isaiah 7, the sign for Ahaz is that the child is born by the time that child is, reaches a certain level of development, 
Ahaz's worries are going to be gone. He's not going to have to worry about the king of Syria and the king of Israel that are attacking him. And so then in Isaiah 8, there is a child that is born, but it's kind of like that prophecy we saw in 2 Samuel 7, where God could tell David his son was going to build a house, and it first referred to Solomon and ultimately to the Christ. What God through Isaiah tells Ahaz first refers to a child that's going to be born in Ahaz's day, but ultimately it's about a child that is truly born to a virgin, kind of like in in 2 Samuel 7, some of the language means one thing with respect to the immediate child and another thing with respect to the future child. Right. So, so that's powerful. But we are uh, out of time, guys. Uh, but I hope that our listeners found this useful today and interesting. Uh, there are a lot of different kinds of prophecy, but when you get down to it, it's hard to turn a couple of pages in the Old Testament without seeing Jesus in it if you pay attention. So thanks for being with us. And Lord willing, we will see you again next week. <laughs> well done. Well done.